Well, today, as mentioned, is the transfiguration of the Lord, which we just read of in the gospel text. So we will take a week off from the book of Esther. And our text will be the New Testament reading from 2 Peter chapter 1. For that text, that 2 Peter 1 text, provides the apostolic interpretation of the transfiguration. The gospel gives you the event. The apostles give you the interpretation. And so, we'll see here the surprising, and I think you'll find it surprising, significance that Peter, the apostle who was there for the transfiguration, invests the event with. And so we'll look at it under two headings, the apostles and the prophets. They're in the back inside page of your bulletin. And under each heading, we'll look at what was seen and what was heard. So what the apostles saw and heard, what the prophets saw and heard. So the text is 2 Peter chapter 1. By way of introduction, I want to point out that Peter has already, in the opening of chapter 1, pointed the church to the coming glory of God. God, he says, calls you. God calls us. To his own glory. That's how Peter opens his letter. And he goes on to say, we're to exercise faith and all the virtues of godliness. So that we can gain an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. The coming glory, the eternal kingdom, they're already governing themes of the epistle. And with that... We'll turn to what the apostles saw. You can see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. So as you know, Peter, James, and John were there on the mount. And Peter, speaking of the event, that's what he's talking about here in 2 Peter 1, the transfiguration. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout, throughout 2 Peter, he's concerned with these false teachers. They introduce, he says, destructive heresies. And here he mockingly refers to their teaching as cleverly devised myths. False teaching is often clever. I've often find myself thinking about that when someone tells me about some movement or some you know, spurious, erroneous movement that a friend of theirs is in or something, and I start to get a handle on it, and I think, oh, that's clever. <laughs> you know, if you, if you make one wrong move here and another wrong move there, and you do this over there, sure, I can see you'd end up over there. So there's a certain cleverly devised myths. And Peter says, look, in contrast to them, in contrast to false teaching, he's concerned here in the opening of this text to assure us of the certainty. Right? This is the assurance we need, is it not? The reliability of the apostolic gospel. He and his colleagues did not follow cleverly devised myths when they made known to us the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, notice, the power and coming of the Lord is what Peter makes known to us when he tells us about the transfiguration. 
or as the NIV puts it, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Or his powerful coming. What is unveiled in this event, in the transfiguration, is the power and the glory, the radiance, the divinity of Christ. Shining forth. But notice the use of the word coming. The power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This word for coming here, parousia, or parousia, right? it's, it's the word commonly used throughout the New Testament for the second coming of Christ. This is why this interpretation of Peter's is surprising. He is saying that the transfiguration is not only a guarantee of the resurrection, it's a guarantee of the powerful second coming and glory of Christ. In fact, he is saying, it is that power and glory already realized in Jesus Christ, already shining through his humanity. The risen Christ is always the transfigured coming Christ. It's surprising, I think, to to make this connection. I don't think we instinctively make it. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses on the mount of his majesty. So I can, he says, I can confirm, contrary to these false teachers and their myths, I can confirm to you, I can guarantee, Peter says to you, the authenticity, the sincerity, the the reality of this gospel. And this is a gospel which entails his coming in glory. And the reason I can tell you that Jesus is going to come in glory and power is because my eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That's what Peter's saying in 2 Peter 1. So the gospel then, that Peter as an apostle preaches, is basically, deeply, fundamentally about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A power and a coming which has already been seen by three of the apostles. Think about that. The second coming of Jesus has already been tasted by three apostles. The end has already broken into time. That's what the apostles saw. And without this context, Peter does not think he can authenticate the gospel to the church. It's because of this that he assures them that the gospel is real. So that's what the apostles saw. Now, what did they hear? They saw this on the mount. Verse 17 says, when Jesus received honor and glory, This refers to the exalted status bestowed on Jesus on the mountain by the Father's utterance and by the fact that his humanity was irradiated, illuminated with the divine glory. He received honor and glory there. There was a voice born to him, Peter says, by the majestic glory. 
So I was not only an, an eyewitness, Peter says, I was, if there is such a thing, an ear witness. We saw and we heard. In other words, the voice that I heard, Peter says, that voice confirms the vision. It authenticates the vision. So what did the voice say? Well, you can see that at the end of verse 17. It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's Peter's summary of the gospel text. Virtually identical, notice this, to the words spoken over Jesus at his baptism. So Peter's saying his baptism points to his death and resurrection. His resurrection entails his transfiguration, and his transfiguration entails his coming in glory. They're all locked together. This is very simple, but it's the deep summary of our faith. You know, there's an ancient tradition in the church, in the liturgies of the church. It goes back to the part of the liturgy known as the memorial acclamation, right after the narrative of the words of institution. The ancient church would say Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's the whole Christian faith in ten words. If you're a young person here, you should memorize those ten words. If you're an older person, you should memorize those ten words. That is the whole Christian faith in ten words. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Everything else in Christian theology is underneath that line. Those are the big events. There's a bunch of other stuff, but those are the big ones. Ten words. That's what Peter's doing here. The same words spoken at the baptism, death and resurrection, are the same words spoken on the mount, second coming. And the eastern churches, which love to celebrate the transfiguration of our Lord for various reasons, they would say at this point, your death, O Lord, we commemorate. Your resurrection we confess. Your second coming we wait for. It's a little more than ten words, but it's the same story. There are no events on the line with death, resurrection, second coming. We ourselves, Peter says, we heard this very voice. Think about what you have in front of you in this text. We heard this voice from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. That's what the apostles heard. The second main thing here is the prophets. The prophets. One of the beautiful things about the transfiguration of our Lord is it brings both the apostles and the prophets into view, and thus it brings all of Scripture into view. Verse 19 says, We have the prophetic word made more reliable or more sure or more confirmed. Now, when Peter speaks of the prophetic word, he means the whole Old Testament. In contemporary Jewish understanding, the prophetic word was synonymous with the Old Testament scriptures. All inspired scripture was a form of prophecy. The whole Old Testament can be thought of as a, as a prophecy because it points forward to the Messiah, to Jesus. So the whole scripture is prophetic. 
And so Peter says here that the prophetic scriptures are further certified or confirmed by the event of the transfiguration. This is another surprising thing, I think. And he draws this practical implication for us. You can see this. It's in the middle of verse 19. This freshly confirmed prophetic word, this Old Testament text, is something to which we would do well to pay attention, Peter says. The transfiguration then means that we should give heed to. We should attend diligently to the Old Testament scriptures. I suggest this is not an implication that we would naturally draw from the transfiguration. I'm going to suggest, or guess, that you've never had a conversation with someone about the transfiguration where one of you has said, yes, of course it means we should pay attention to the Old Testament. But that's exactly what Peter does here, does he not? Notice that in the text. And it's quite remarkable. He insists that since the transfiguration confirms the prophetic expectation of the Old Testament scriptures, we should give renewed attention to the text. Guess what he's implying here? Now, this is very important in our day and age. This is very important for the way Christians think. Right? Peter is implying something like this. Listen, you are not going to get your own private transfiguration-like experience. Right? The point of the transfiguration is not to create a kind of mystical hankering for visions or for miraculous apparitions. Right? Often someone will say they had a vision. Right? People want to have visions. You know what happens here? Peter has a vision and then he tells the church, don't you worry about having a vision Go back to the Old Testament text. It's remarkably counterintuitive, and it cuts against the grain of the whole age. If we did it, had the vision, we'd say, I had this vision. And if you follow these steps, you could have a vision. Right? The event confirms the whole Old Testament. Therefore, pay renewed, Christ-centered attention to the Old Testament text. And he says this, we should pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place. Think of the Old Testament as a burning lamp. The prophets, they looked forward, they saw Jesus, they saw Christ, and what they left us is a textual lamp, like a written burning light. The Old Testament is described this way, is it not? In uh, Psalm 119, your word is a light to my path and a lamp to my feet. And it's presently shining. The Old Testament text is shining, Peter says, in a dark place. Pay attention to it as a lamp in a dark place. Right? The dark place refers to this age. Right, to what Paul calls this present darkness against which we wage spiritual war. The present evil age. And the word that Peter uses for dark place is a graphic word. It suggests a squalid, murky dungeon. Into this dark dungeon of an age, the prophetic word shines like a lamp. That's not all. 
That, that shows how much we should cling to the word, how much we need the word. The word is a lamp shining in a squalid dungeon. But also the word predicts the coming of a day. Christ has broken into the darkness. And light has gone forth and we're still waiting for the full dawning of that light. And thus notice what Peter says. He wastes no phrases here. He says we must give heed to the prophetic word as a lamp shining in the squalid darkness Until the day dawns. Until the day dawns. The day is an image of the coming day. The day brought near. The day tasted. The day prefigured by the power and coming of Jesus on display in the transfiguration. The night is almost gone, Paul says. The day is at hand. Again, I'm not sure this is intuitive for us. That's why the text is so important. The transfiguration not only confirms the whole Old Testament, it confirms the coming day of the Lord because that's the central theme of the Old Testament. The central theme of the Old Testament is Jesus, or Christ, the Messiah, but it's a Christ who brings a messianic kingdom who brings forth a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, the Old Testament predicts the coming of Christ in the fullness of his splendor and his majesty and his glory. And so what Peter is saying to the church, saying to us this morning is, we can never dismiss ourselves from the school of the prophets. We must heed them until the squalid night is gone. And the day which has dawned in Christ fully dawns. The transfiguration is about the second coming of Jesus. And along with this dawning day is the rising of the morning star. You see this in verse 19. Until the morning star rises. The morning star in the ancient world referred to Venus. Star Venus, which was a herald of the coming day. And so by the time of the New Testament, it's an image of the age to come. It's an image of the coming glory. You know when it's used? Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible. After Jesus has defeated all his enemies after he's ushered in the eternal kingdom, Jesus refers to himself and says, I am the bright morning star. It's an eschatological image, meaning an image of the future coming glory. The morning star, that that morning star speaks of the coming transfiguration of all things by the transfigured Christ. And notice here, it's said to rise in your hearts. It's said to rise in your heart. This refers to the fact that we will subjectively, from the interior depths of our being, participate in the objective renewal of the whole creation. Jesus is the morning star. He comes on the day, the day prefigured by the coming, already prefigured in the transfiguration. 
This is why Jesus can promise the churches in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, the church of Thyatira, if they overcome and they conquer, I will give you the morning star. So the morning star is the transfigured Christ coming, coming in the full light of his glory and splendor and kingdom. And it's your participation in that reality. That's what the prophets saw. Finally, what did they hear? Verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of the prophet's own interpretation. So the prophets, they both have an event. There's revelation given to the prophets, right? And then there's a divine interpretation of that experience. It's not just experience. It's experience, and then God tells them what the experience means. And thus prophecy does not originate, verse 21 says, in the human will, but by, it comes about through men who spoke from God. We have both human and divine authorship affirmed here. Men spoke from God. They're carried along, Peter says. It's a beautiful image. They were carried like the idea is the sails of a ship being filled up by the wind. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, guiding and directing the prophets to write what they heard. In short, Peter's saying the prophetic word is inspired, infallible, God-breathed scripture. So that is the Apostle Peter's remarkably dense and rich And I think surprising interpretation of the transfiguration and its significance. I want to conclude with three implications of this for our lives. I'm going to call them glory, scripture, and the cross. Glory, scripture, and the cross. Quickly. First, the transfiguration, like so much else, like everything, really, in Holy Scripture, is designed to turn and orient us to the future kingdom of Christ. The risen Christ is always the transfigured coming Christ. And so the transfiguration, then, is not simply a divine light show. Right? Wow, wasn't that spectacular? It's not meant simply to awe us. It's meant to reorient us radically to the coming city of God. Because why? It is about the powerful coming, the parousia, the coming in glory of the risen Jesus. That's what Peter tells us about. Imagine having this experience. This experience that Peter has had. To see Jesus' power and his majestic coming in glory on the mountain. What earthly thing would quench your desire after that? Everything's a little anticlimactic. I mean, it should be the same for us when we read this text. The whole world should be altered for you if you hear this text. The whole world. We should have the same response that Peter had. You know, decades after this event, Peter's not 
satisfied. He's not sated. His, his thirst is not quenched. This experience had an indelible impact on Peter. He didn't catch the significance of it right away, to be sure. But if you look later, decades later, at the opening of his first epistle, you will see a man completely, not partially, completely oriented to the coming of Christ in glory, to his heavenly inheritance, living out of his resurrection reality and the living hope, telling suffering Christians in Asia Minor, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the coming of Christ in glory. The transfiguration means we should yearn for the glorious advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we yearn for this? Well, we saw it in the call to worship today. Then and only then, John tells us in his first epistle, we shall see him as he is. We shall experience the fullness, the permanent reality that Peter tasted on the mount. And nothing less than that can be the church's chief desire because nothing less than that can satisfy the human heart because you were built for immortality, for resurrection glory, for being beyond death and beyond probation. The bride longs for her bridegroom. And as I've said before, we don't want to be like what so much contemporary Christianity appears to be. A bride that wants the bridegroom to stay in Europe and FaceTime her. Just text me for the next thousand years. I'm not really interested in you tearing the sky open and reappearing. You know, word, sacrament, glorious gifts, but they're indirect. We see through a glass darkly. Right? Peter got for a minute to not see through the glass darkly. And it impacts his whole apostolic ministry. That's why even in 2 Peter, forget 1 Peter, even in this Peter, he opens with, he's called you to his glory. Right? He's called you to his glory. Remember, 2 Peter is written by Peter just before he dies. He's called you to his glory. Be virtuous so you can enter the eternal kingdom. And now let me tell you about the transfiguration. It's about the coming of Jesus in glory. We are to cry Maranatha or we live a deeply sub-apostolic Christian existence. Those are the choices. Second, and in the meantime, notice, these two things go together. In the time of this squalid darkness, the transfiguration is to drive us to the prophetic word of Scripture. You don't need a lamp if everything's already lit. But the Old Testament is a lamp, Peter says, shining in the dungeon. And what does that lamp do? Well, it points us to this coming day. You don't need a lamp of Scripture in glory. Neither Scripture nor the sacraments are necessary in glory when the light radiates forth in its fullness. Scripture is for pilgrims. 
Read Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the psalmist is in the promised land. He says, I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. Scripture is for people who have to wrestle with the darkness, both within and without. You need this lamp. Attend to this lamp. You know why the lamp is so important? Because in it, in Scripture, not yet by sight, not yet by sight, but by faith, you can see, you can get a perception of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, in Scripture, you can begin to taste the glory, see the glory, spread the light. Finally, third, third implication. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. The church has wisely, and this has gone on for hundreds of years, it has always placed this text on the transfiguration right before Lent. It's always the last Sunday before Lent. In the Gospels after this event, Jesus turns toward Jerusalem. He predicts his death and the glories that follow. And as such, the text has another practical purpose for us. It's intended to encourage you in the way of the cross, which is the only path to glory. Jesus knows what awaits these apostles when they follow him to Jerusalem. Eventually, what awaits them is martyrdom. And so the text reminds us that the discipline of the cross, the life of daily repentance, can't be ignored or shirked. But here you get a glimpse of the glory. Because the Christian life is hard. You can lose heart on the journey if you forget the end. Again, imagine this. Imagine you're Peter and you saw this. Don't you think that this is part of the reason you endure being crucified upside down in Rome in 64 AD? But if you, brothers and sisters, if you lose sight of this, you will wander in the Christian life. Because bearing your cross and taking it up is difficult if there's no sense of this coming irradiated glory, you know, suffusing our existence. Otherwise, Christianity just becomes drudgery, moral work, elbow grease. Right? It's just as Jesus knows. He says, I know what they need. I'm going to give them a taste of my coming transfiguration of the whole creation. Right? It's a pledge to you. Remember this. You yourself shall be transfigured in Christ. You will be a body of light. You will be a body of light. You need to remember where you're going. We need to taste and see the future or we'll faint on the way. And we need to see Jesus. And the Jesus we need to see is this Jesus, risen, transfigured, and coming. So we say with the church, come Lord Jesus. We pay careful attention to this lamp. And we embrace the way of the cross. For you know what this same Peter says in that first epistle? He says this. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Amen.